When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Unlearned, a self-rising production. I'm Jamie. And I'm CA. And we are your hosts. This is a podcast all about deconstructing who we are and exploring who we are becoming. Yeah, remember that time? I thought I told you the story in the Christmas party where um, like I spilled all that stuff, like I spilled all the candy and then they sent me to the room, but like you know, like getting locked in there. I thought I told you. No, you never told me about getting locked in your room. No, I swear I've told you this before, but I'm telling you it like, because okay. this is the time that they forgot to come get me. Oh so I was God. like there for like four hours. Locked? I am, no, you never told me the details. I've told you, you I've I mean, gone to, I got sent to my room all the time. And like, that's like, that's, that's like, comp, like, isn't that what people are talking about when they say they get sent to the room? Like it's common that people get locked in there when they were little. No, no, that part. No, people don't lock their kids in rooms. Well, that's what I was that every time I said I got sent to my room, that's what I was talking about. Oh my God. No, I don't think that that's like typical Jamie. I don't think that's like normally part of people's childhood to be locked. I was never locked in my room. For hours I mean that's intense yeah I guess I guess it is I don't I don't I really don't know what to say because I just thought that was what people talked about when they said they got sent to the room I just thought everybody was doing that yeah I don't think so babe all right ending the scene and scene right. so we're doing that as a Woo! role model that wasn't real obviously that's scary and traumatizing uh but we are modeling that for a very particular reason in this episode because there's a common theme that we see in the healing circles that people struggle with naming something as either traumatic or remember so we're going to go into this in the episode a little bit remember that something like getting locked in a room is like an incidental thing that you could actually like go back and be like, Ooh, that wasn't great. Right. And we also do this with complex trauma and we'll go a little bit into more details. I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with that term, but I'm just for the sake of clarity, we're going to go into that a little bit more, but when we think about something that happens over a long period of time. So let's say you are really sensitive to jokes, CA, because in your family, jokes were never funny. They were always veiled mockery and veiled cryptic, uh, underhanded bullying. And so you get very sensitive to jokes. And then someone like, when you're an adult starts talking to you and they're like, you know, I've realized you get very abrasive around jokes. Like, so what is going on there? You think about talking to CA and she having this reaction to jokes. My brain is like curious, like why can't she even like handle any type of humor? And CA eventually comes out and says something like, well, you know how jokes can be, you know, they're pretty cruel. Like they're, Mm -hmm. they're almost always cruel. Right. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, not every, every joke isn't cruel. And CA's like, but like it is like every cruel, every joke is cruel. Right. Like somebody's, you know, the butt of a joke. Like it's always to belittle somebody or mock somebody. Right. Like growing up. Right. Like didn't your siblings and parents like knock you down, blah, blah, blah. And you're sitting there like. No, no. (laughs) And I think this is what's 
yeah, this is what we modeled in the first example in the very beginning as well, which is that this type of complex trauma often happens in a context where you were unfamiliar with any alternative. You didn't realize that there was like another way that this could be going on in other families or other relationships or whatever, because this was just your normal. And when something is your normal, you have no reason to think or believe that there's anything wrong with it. Or even if inside you don't like it, you don't realize that there's a complete alternative way that it could be being done. Sure, sure. And because we're children, a lot of the times that this is happening, and we're going to speak a little bit outside of the children context. But for the sake of right now, like, especially the example we led with in the beginning of the episode, it's difficult for people to see the devastating effect of some of those experiences because it's so almost like integrated into their experience. Or let's say it's something like complex trauma, which is something similar to like the the consistent mockery and joking and everything that happened for like, I don't know, let's say you stayed at the house till you're 22. So for 22 years, you experienced that level of like mockery or whatever. Why this becomes very difficult is now you're trying to like become your own, you're trying to become your own individual and you're starting to expose yourself to new environments. And, you know, you're noticing that not everybody's family is constantly mocking each other and constantly putting, pulling each other down. And it's, it's odd because you're almost trying to kind of rationalize like, okay, well, that was my normal, but it looks like this family is so different than mine. And I somehow have to still say like, nope, I still love my mom exactly how I thought I loved her. And I still love my brother exactly how I thought I loved my brother. And they're still my brother, right? And you realize that your brother can be your brother. But it isn't until you start untangling this that your brother could also be an emotionally abusive person in your life, right? Which is why this becomes very tricky is that A lot of these are in the context of families, and then it can slowly integrate into like partnerships, right? And especially if you get partnered up very, very young, and you know, let's say you meet your significant other when you're like early 20s, and they start treating you a very particular way, and then it takes you 10 years to realize, wait, I think I normalize that behavior, and now I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Well, okay. I wanted to speak also to the concept of when earlier when I said something about like you not realizing that there's an alternative way of being and you talking about how we get exposed maybe to some of those alternatives. I don't know about you, but for myself with my particular history of traumatic experiences that were happening in my upbringing, when I would then, quote unquote, like be exposed to another way, like whether that was going over to a friend's house or being in some sort of setting where I watched families interacting in a way that, you know, now I would probably describe as, yeah, they were acting in a pretty healthy family dynamic. The way that I rationalized that was, well, this is the This is the show. This is the public persona version of family interaction because that's how it was in my family. And I think for a lot of people, that's why I'm speaking to this, is that a lot of these sort of insidious, complex, traumatic things that were happening to us were very specifically relegated to those private times. Like those types of experiences wouldn't happen in a larger group setting, if if friends were over or at holiday parties or whatever, it was it was like there was a different like I well, that's why I call it the show. It was like there there was a performative version of your family, and then there was a private version of your family. And so when I would experience people's homes, I'd be like, well, this is their this is how you act when guests are over, right? Like, of course, everybody's nice to each other and 
<laughs> says kind, uplifting things and genuinely respects one another because that's what we're supposed to perform when other people are around. And I think the same thing does happen in relationships, like intimate partnerships and things like that, which is that's why you get those same things where the, you can be experiencing harmful behaviors behind closed doors, but your partner doesn't behave that way in public or in front of other friends. And so there is this kind of double life going on and you can, because of that, you can, it takes a lot longer maybe to identify or put to words what really is going on. And I think that's what we want to talk about during this episode is when we normalize those things and rationalize them, they tend to snowball and accumulate for greater lengths of time. And the way to kind of dispel this is to call things what they are. And I know, Jamie, like in your socials, you get a lot of flack for this. I have gotten flack for this even in my socials. I've literally had people like try to like give me heat for using the word trauma to describe certain things. And they'll be like, oh, stop calling that trauma. Like that's just as almost you said it like in in our opening scenario there, like, isn't that just like everybody's got something, right? Like nobody's childhood was perfect. Like stop calling it trauma. But I actually think not calling things trauma and not calling things abuse and like trying to, you know, euphemize the language around what's happening to us can be a real hindrance to our healing. And it slows down our path to healing and like actually living in a safe, authentic way. Right. And that's why I think this episode is so important is we see this happening as almost like an active hindrance of processing pain, right? So if we're trying to identify why we're so dysregulated or why our mood's all over the place or why we, like last episode, why do we insert narratives? that aren't there? And why do we see things that are problematic? And ironically, I don't know if you caught that CA, but you almost relived last episode where you were like, I was at a friend's house and I was inserting the narrative that this was all fake. When in reality, that was actually their authentic, beautiful connection as a family that can actually communicate and actually hold space for pain and processing. And when someone breaks a dish, they don't get traumatized. They just say, let's clean this up together. Let's figure out a problem or uh, let's figure out a way to solve this problem. And so when you see that your, your trauma brain might be like, oh, well, they're only doing that together because I'm here. And if my best friend dropped that plate and and I wasn't here, she would have probably gotten locked in a room like I do, right? And so that's because the trauma brain is trying to make sense of why you are enduring so much pain. It's saying, if I see someone live a variation of the pain that I go through and they are not traumatized, there has to be a reason why they're not being traumatized, but I am, right? And so you insert the narrative. Well, they they probably are getting trauma. They're not gonna, you're not gonna use that word as a child, but you're saying they probably are gonna get locked in their room. It's just, they don't do that when I'm over here, right? And so that's the beginning stages, everybody, if you listen to last week's episode of inserting narratives that may not be there. Because the brain is doing that to protect you, to make sure like, I don't know how else to process this other than I'm assuming everyone deals with this and I'm just not seeing the full picture, right? So that's where I thought it was a cool link. I don't know if you saw it, but there was like a cool link between last week's episode and this week's episode. All right. So moving towards some operative definitions, we want to kind of establish a couple of the things we're talking about because we want to kind of jump right into this. So me and CA have used a couple of examples already. And while we're using those examples, we're going to try to describe a little bit of why 
we can differentiate something that's considered trauma or complex trauma. And I will go on record and say this, and I just said this to my own therapist, that I refuse to use big T and little t trauma anymore because I believe in the power of language. And the power of language means when I say big T and little t, I'm automatically assuming that that little t, and yes, I understand that that can be a perspective shift, but Typically, when we think of something smaller, it's not as impactful as something that's considered larger, right? So big T is always going to be considered the big problem, right? And little T is just like, yeah, I mean, that's problematic, but, you know, it is it is what it is. So I made it a resolution that I am no longer going to use big T and little T trauma. I will use like trauma, or if someone wants it to be anchored on a specific incident, we can call it incidental trauma. Or we can look at the trauma. I mean, I guess I could say and. And we can look at the trauma described previously by many people as little t and reclaim that as what it is, which is complex trauma. So this is where I think we're going to go in. I'm going to go into a little of the definition of complex. See, I can describe a little of the incidentals and some of the hangups there. But when we talk about complex trauma, this is what I'm talking about. All right. A lot of people think C in CPTSD is childhood. It is not. It is complex. Okay. Complex means that it does not have to only occur in childhood. Does it typically happen in childhood? Yes. But complex trauma can happen at any period of your life, any period of your life. Please hear that. All right. So let's get that out of the way. The C is complex. And when I'm talking about complex trauma, I am talking about trauma that is dripping over your life. It is slowly exposing you to traumatic psychological constructs or themes, and you are trying to adapt and adjust around those behaviors or experiences or situations. And it's so slowly integrating into your life that the only option is to assume that that is normal. That is a typical childhood experience, which is why I'm going back to the beginning example, which is me talking to a CA and saying, that's a normal, typical experience, CA, getting locked in your room occurred pretty often for me. So of course, that's what everybody else is talking about when they say they got sent to their room, because I integrated it as part of a normalized experience in my development. All right, that's that right up right there is how you can start identifying complex trauma themes is that when you realize that something occurred so often in your house, slammed doors, passive aggressive tones, mockery, deprecating people, people getting shoved, people like I'm just giving random examples, but these are small moments small moments that if I trickled over you every three to four days or maybe even weekly for 20 years, you're going to walk away from that experience thinking when you fight, you, you slam doors. That's, that is how we fight. That's just how I do this. So when we're trying to talk about identifying complex trauma, I use an acronym. All right. And I use the word drip. It's D-R-I-P. And a way to remember complex trauma and how to conceptualize it is it is an experience that you've encountered that has a long duration. It's repeating. It's happening often. It's insidious, which means you're not necessarily noticing its presence all the time because it's integrating into your everyday life and it's persistent. It doesn't actually end. It's persisting in your experience, which is why many people do link this to childhood experiences because what happens when you're a child? You don't get to just 
wake up one day at seven years old and leave your environment. You can't leave that environment. So when someone says that just integrated into my experience, like I literally didn't have a choice to see my life any other way. I just saw everyone as naturally passive aggressive. Everyone was sarcastic. That's just how everybody was. So I felt as though there was no choice to just join in in that passive aggressive manipulation or that passive, you know, whatever it is, right? So that's the acronym I give you guys because it helps you conceptualize what is going on in complex trauma that's not necessarily going on in what we would dub big T, which I'm not using anymore. I'm just going to stop saying it. And what is not occurring in what we would consider like incidental trauma or what typical culture considers trauma, that's Mm -hmm. what we need to talk. We need to talk about why there's these differences. And that's why I'm going to hand it over to CA because there is differences Mm -hmm. here that we have to discuss. So what we are calling something more along the lines of like incidental trauma, this, this is like you said, what people like typically when you hear that, oh, this is what they think of. These are those kind of like big events that are more one-off, if we would say. I mean, even if it took place over the course of like three to seven days, if it was like a hospital traumatic thing that happened, it's still like an event that's like solidified in time that like, oh, that was what happened, right? I, I got into the car accident and literally like broke seven bones and had a hospital stay of two weeks and it's at, and, and, you know, physical therapy for months. Like that is an event that occurred like this one and done ish like experience where you can really point to it. And it's very like linear in it's like chronology of like when it occurred in your life. And you can sort of describe it in a very linear fashion like that. What I want to talk about is kind of interestingly how this kind of like affects our brain and our nervous system. And I'm not a doctor or a psychiatrist or anything like that, but I I have this like a special interest of mine. So I have like really like looked into like how this stuff actually affects. And what I find so fascinating is that our nervous system is incredibly intelligent and that's why it often um, speaks even when we don't have the actual verbal vocabulary to describe what's going on. So when the brain experiences a trauma or the body, etc., it's like all systems overload, right? The whole brain and body goes, this is not normal. This is way out of what is like something that we are used to managing on a day-to-day basis. So as soon as like this massive thing happens, right, the the car accident happens, or if you are a person who was has experienced active duty combat, you know, and, and you, the bomb goes off, or you're experiencing like actual like, like gunfire, like that sort of thing. Um, Unfortunately, we live in the United States where mass shootings are a real occurrence that happens. And we have people that have survived those mass shootings, right? That is a massive traumatic event, right? You you experience that and immediately the brain, the body, everything knows this isn't normal. This isn't right. This is not what we're used to. And it kicks in like all your survival gear basically, to to make sure that you survive that event. And that's what it's concerned with. It's concerned with survival. That's what happens when you are experienced, like when you are actively receiving and experiencing trauma to your body and brain, survival is the the only thing that is like being prioritized by your brain at that moment. And it will do whatever it takes to get you through that event. So then you come out of that and it takes a while to recalibrate all of those systems back down 
into understanding and believing that you are safe. You did survive the event. And this is why we you hear about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And what that is, is when something in your environment happens that starts to mimic the like sensory environment of what happened during your traumatic experience, the brain and the body responds to that stimuli in the same way that it responded the initial time. Even if there isn't actually a real and present danger here, it's still going, oh, last time this happened, we almost died. So all those survival systems like kick back on again for you. So that's why you, the, the classic version that you hear, right? Like is a soldier comes back home and like, here's a car backfire and their body goes into fight or flight because they think that that's, you know, gunfire around the corner when really it's just somebody's car not starting. Okay. So that is kind of an explanation of those kind of intense traumatic events. What I find so fascinating is how the brain and the nervous system logs those complex traumatic events that go on over time. Because like, as I said, our nervous system is incredibly intelligent and operates on its own system. Like we don't really think about it, right? It's one of those kind of like automatic systems that's operating at all times. The nervous system still logs those things that are happening as this isn't right or this isn't normal. But often what's happening is we are lacking, like I said, the vocabulary to describe it and really understand what isn't right about it. But the brain and the nervous system is still going to do what its job is when it's experiencing stimuli that's like threatening. And it's still going to do whatever it takes to get you to survive. And that is how we come up with all of these adaptive mechanisms, basically, to survive this consistent, persistent experience of traumatic things happening, whether it's psychological or physical or any other manner of traumatic thing that's happening to us. The brain's number one MO is still survive. We're going to survive it. We're going to figure out some workaround. It's kind of genius. And it becomes then very difficult to undo (laughs) later on because it will literally craft all these extremely... if, if If the trauma is complex, then the survival mechanism is also complex. So it crafts this very intricate interwoven into our belief systems, into our physical response systems. Like our whole entire brain and body comes up with this advanced survival mechanism to get us through that. And that's where a lot of that normalization stuff comes through. So moving into kind of the part where you want to start healing from that, when you're healing from these big one-off event traumas, It's, I don't want to say easier, that's not the right word, but it's more straightforward because it's a little bit more like clear and concise that this was the thing that happened. This was how my body responded to it. This is how I can start unraveling that sort of response that my body had to that. But when we start trying to heal these more complex traumatic experiences, it can be more difficult and more complicated because it's hard to even point and say, this was the thing that happened because it wasn't just a one thing that happened. It was years worth of accumulated things that occurred. Right. I think what's really cool about that point that you just made, which is the differential right there, is when you think about what we would culturally consider and label as trauma, like when CA uses the classic, like, combat vet, or I think about, you know, someone getting assaulted or mugged on the street or, you know, someone getting burglarized or a car accident. What's interesting, and mind you, I got to say some caveats are to be had here, but let, like, if I could speak almost like in a cultural view of those events, typically they are more likely to be validated. 
by the external. Are they always validated by the external? No, because there's nuance to everything. And they're typically, if any trauma is going to be validated, though the old school view of trauma will typically be validated way before complex trauma. All right. So yes, do people still want to say that, you know, you can't have marital rape and stuff and invalidate people's assaults and stuff. Yes, of course they do. Yes. And that happens. And unfortunately it's still common that people will invalidate real moments that are clearly violating the psyche and violating this physical self. And weirdly though, if we can think about it like this, if something can be so clearly disruptive and and dysregulating to the system. If we can have a culture that to some degree might validate it, but then we have some parts that still do not validate what is so obviously disruptive, it is no surprise that culturally complex trauma is too difficult to understand and it makes a lot of sense that your individual relationship with complex trauma may be one that is evasive or in some kind of denial state of being. Mainly because if people can't even see someone getting mugged on the street as traumatic, why would I be able to justify my mother's manipulation for 20 years. How could that actually have been a dysregulator in my system when this isn't even validated, right? And so that's why I like to not use the language like big T and little t because right off the bat, it looks like they need to be compared. Right off the bat, it looks like we need to say, well, at least I didn't get assaulted or at least my dad didn't beat me till I was beat me to a pulp when I was seven. You know what, CA? And that's what you hear. Actually, if I model it, because I know you guys love the modeling. If I looked at you and you said that to me about locking in the room and I look at you and I go, you know what, CA? I'm, I don't think my parents are bad parents. I don't know what you're insinuating, but they're not bad parents. They didn't beat me. They didn't beat me. Right? So what am I saying? My, I can't integrate that that was impacting me because it happened so often in my childhood. And I'm comparing it to an incidental big moment that I know that some children experience. And you know, if you're a listener of this podcast, there is no trauma hierarchy. There is no trauma hierarchy. You can drown in 200 feet of water and you can drown in two feet of water. All right. You are still impacted regardless if you're constantly experiencing complex trauma or regardless if you've had one or two incidents of like what we consider incidental or trauma, cultural trauma, like the perspective. And you can still be equally affected. So let me just validate that. I got to validate that for you. For sure. Isn't it funny how we are so quick to like compare our traumatic experiences to something worse, but we would never think to compare it to something better, right? Like it's so easy to say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, my parents like screamed at me and berated me and called me names my entire childhood, but they never physically hurt me. So I guess I'm like, I should be fine. Like why... Who am I to complain when people have it so much worse, right? That's normal. It's very, I don't mean normal, but it's very typical for people to like downplay what happened to them by comparing it to something worse. But you never hear somebody be like, you know, my parents verbally berated me and name called me my entire childhood and other people had childhood with childhoods where their parents, you know, corrected them in patience and love and never degraded them or their character as a human being. 
I didn't have that. I, I had the, the, like people don't do that in the reverse. They don't like compare up. They only ever compare down. And I just think that that's so interesting. And it speaks sadly to the reality that we seem to be living in culturally where we don't hold abusers accountable for whatever reason. I think there's multiple reasons probably. Um, Part of it is when you were in childhood, there was no way for you to hold them accountable. So you just had to learn to live with it. But then even as you get older, you're like, well, it's said and done and there's no way to hold them accountable anymore because it's all over. So then you feel like it's kind of a moot point, right? Like, well, why, why drudge it up? And that's usually what your parents might say to you if you do try to you know, approach, Hey, when we were growing up, this happened. And, you know, I really need you to know that that wasn't right. And that really hurt me and caused me a lot of pain. A lot of times you'll get hit with the, yeah, well, who cares? It's water under the bridge. (laughs) Okay. Um, and so like, that's part of it. But then another part of it is how we're all just sort of having this unspoken normalization of a, childhood rife with pain, whether that's physical, psychological, or otherwise. And so it's like we're just collectively accepting our fate. Like, this is just what it is. We all just, that's childhood for you. And what would happen if we collectively, as a society, decided that this didn't have to be our collective norm, right? that there was a better way as a community of human beings to raise children, if we're just using that as an example, right? The the childhood example. And what became the more normalized standard was like healthy family interaction. I feel like in that scenario, then like these, these you know, more insidious versions of childhood abuse, neglects, trauma would stand out more and there it would be like easier to talk about right and to say like oh that happened and it really wasn't right and I could tell it wasn't right because that's not how you're supposed to treat children but it's like I think maybe it's a generational shift type of a thing and I know I'm kind of in the weeds right now and I'm I'm almost just you know daydreaming a little bit about a future (laughs) where children are (laughs) children are treated with respect because they're also human beings um but I, I think uh, what, I, what the point I was like generally trying to make, though, is the how we always do that comparing down thing rather than comparing up thing. And it speaks to a lack of education and understanding about what is normal and healthy. And this often is really what shows up when you start talking about relationship dynamics. There isn't enough really explicit conversation happening about what is healthy and normal in like a romantic or intimate partnership. And it can be weird to talk about and bring up and try to figure out if what you're experiencing is normal or not. Because again, if it's what you're experiencing, you're just going to assume that it's normal. Oh, yeah. You want to start a fight on the internet? Try to say that there is a actual way to treat people. I get flack all the time. You know, I have the series about like trying to emulate what toxic traits look like. Yeah, yeah. People are like, this isn't a problem. Everybody in my family talks like this. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, y'all telling on yourselves. Y'all telling on yourselves all here. What are you doing? <laughs> That's what I mean about the like collective normalization. It's It's just, it's wild. Sure. And that's actually a comment that came through recently. I think it was this past week. It was... There is no normal. There is no normal way to interact with people. And I'm like, wow. So we can't have standards of how we're going to be treated, basically. We aren't going to be able to have standards for ourselves. And that's, I'm glad you started talking about the relationship connection. Because to me, if we're going to talk about what are the implications of this remaining unchecked, what is the implication if I refuse 
to look at CA and say, wait, that did cause me pain. And that is not normal. Like what is, what's the implication if I actually integrate that as normal? All right, let's play it out. Now I have a child and now they pissed me the fuck off. My immediate connection to that feeling and the only thing that was modeled, lock them in their room. It happened to me. I survived. So the implication of not actually holding space, and this is why I'm going to actually say this, why I think people need to hear this, okay, is that if we think it's hard for people to hold space for trauma that we consider like incident moments and like peak moments, it is exponentially difficult for someone to acknowledge that the way things were normalized in their home growing up, or it could even have been, and let me give an example because I like to give a couple of different examples. You could have actually experienced a very healthy, safe environment as a child, and then you found yourself in a toxic sorority or a, remember, these are sociological structures, okay? So sociological structures absolutely can be incidences of complex trauma. You found yourself in a high demand religion. You find yourself in a culty like sorority. You found yourself in some kind of social group or friend group that was very, very problematic. And everyone started mimicking like behaviors that you're like, I don't know, like, I don't know why we're all having to lie to each other, but I guess whatever. And so there's these weird micro groups that start occurring when you're late teens into early 20s. And it happens in workplaces, it happens in colleges, it happens in friend groups, and it happens in relationships, intimate relationships. So when we think about, oh, well, I made it through childhood, I didn't really have any of this, so I can't have complex trauma. I would give you a big like, yellow flag to be cautious and say, this can happen in relational constructs, okay? So for example, you might've been modeled what would be considered a healthy dynamic, but you were never in a sexual relationship when you were like, no one no one was dating when they were children, right? So now you're a late teen, early 20, and you are now exposed to a new relational dynamic, which is sexual or highly intimate, regardless if you're having sex, it's a different dynamic of relating to each other. So now guess what that partner could do? They could do the exact same thing that some of the people that had the hard childhood have. And they could say, this is just how relationships are, Jamie. This is just how it is. This is how we treat each other. I get to call you the C word when we're swearing and you just have to normalize that. And I look at myself and I go, but I've never been called the C word when someone was was fighting with me. But I guess like, you know, I guess this is just how some couples fight, right? So what I wanted to outline for y'all is that there is massive implications to not identifying these patterns as problematic and then remained unchecked what do they do? What is left for them to do? All that's left for them to do is integrate more and more and more into your psyche as typical relational behavior. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So how do we start to put language to our experiences. What what does that process look like? If you're listening to this episode right now and you're even sitting there thinking, wow, like there might be things in my past that probably should be labeled as trauma or abuse that I have previously not really given that language to. How do we work up the courage to do that? How do we process that integration of 
information and, and like understanding that perspective now. And basically it's weird because you kind of have to go back through and almost relive things and understand your whole, whether it was your childhood or a relationship through a different lens. And that can be very painful. Um, but it's also kind of, as we said at the beginning, a necessary step in healing from it. Right. I mean, one of the things I'd say right off the bat, this is a caution that some people do when they start this work, is they try to find things that aren't there. And it actually is something that happens in like new age cultures. And they go, okay, let's do retroactive past life regression. You have like, we don't have memories there, right? I get really nervous when people try to do that because we do not have to go on a witch hunt for our trauma. We don't have to, because guess what? Your trauma is literally showing up in the here and now every freaking day. We don't have to go and find the exact moment that that exact thing happened. Sure, for some people, it is helpful when you start, you know, let's say you're talking to your siblings and you're like, was that actually in my head? And they're like, oh no, that happened, right? Like sometimes that kind of thing is helpful, but what we're not gonna do is we're not gonna like manifest something that isn't right at, like, actually present in our like you know history okay what I will say though is what do I mean by like your trauma is already in the moment in the here and now okay what do I mean by that I mean what CA outlined when she talked about how our body does not have a choice to create infrastructures of protection and so for some of the incidental it might be more like linked to an event and then for complex it will still do the same thing but it won't be as like overtly you know it's not gonna be like an immediate connection so that's why that gets more tricky with complex trauma all right and that being said it can be more tricky and it's still there it is still in our body somewhere so what do i typically tell my clients and ca's done this work too and when she talks to people and helps people through this i want you guys to hear why this is so important and the techniques that can start happening okay i pay attention to any time this is i'm gonna speak in the eye because this is stuff i do all right i don't go fishing searching. I don't have to do all of that. Do I have a lot of complex trauma? Yes. All right. How do I start untangling? I pay attention to when any part of my psyche lingers on an experience. All right. So me and CA just had a conversation. I hear her do an off, you know, off kilter joke or something. And I laugh it off. I don't say anything, right? And I walk away. And in any other case that a conversation didn't have a joke like that, I'm not thinking about that conversation. That conversation is not staying with me in any re- in any way and there's no rhyme or like I am not staying psychologically present to that conversation in any way. Why? Because the brain sees no point in in staying there, right? So what am I paying attention to? I'm on the drive home from her house, and let's say I have like an hour drive home, okay? And I realize that the entire hour, I feel pain. I feel upset. I might not even immediately link it to CA, but I feel like I walked away from that experience with her with a bad taste in my mouth. I felt like, you know, and this is where people are, it's hard to read because people will be like, how's your day? And if you say, you know what? It didn't go that well, right? And people are like, why? And if you do not actually explore why, you're not gonna get any of this information. So if Let's say my partner is like, how'd it go with CA today? And I go, not great. I don't know. And the, why, why? You know, you usually have a great time with her. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to think about it, honestly. It's fine. But, but you are going to think about it because your brain did just think about it for an hour. And then when you go to sleep again, you're going to think, why am I so mad at CA? Right? Okay. So now my brain not only didn't release it quickly, but it also is lingering around something 
without further processing or exploring the pain, okay? So, and I'm giving the example of the joke for a reason because it's linking to other things we talked about in this episode. So what would it look like for me to start getting at some thematic pain that's linked to complex trauma? All right, so this is what it's going to look like. Instead of just saying, I don't know, I don't care, just don't even ask, okay? On that ride home, I start noticing when my body lingers around a situation. And when I mean lingering, you can use a couple of different words. Like sometimes I use tension. Sometimes there's that dissonance or the energy feels off or you just feel like something about that is just like stuck. Okay. So when you can start getting familiar with that feeling, that is how your brain can start being like, okay, if I'm feeling this way, let me sit with this information. Let me walk through the day with CA. We had a really good day. I felt really good. Okay, we had a couple hours, you know, and I realized, I don't know, I guess it was like that last, like, that last kind of like ending, probably the last 20 minutes, like I started feeling like a little icky and I kind of was upset. Okay, so what happened, Jamie, during that conversation? Was there any nonverbals that she did? Was there anything that was said? Was there any uh, discussion points that we were talking about that we disagreed with? What are some things that happened in this conversation that left you with this feeling? And all of a sudden I start realizing, oh, well, right at the end, she did that like thing that she occasionally does. And I always just skirted off as like nothing, but she did that like underhanded joke. at the expense of me. And so now because I'm in my healing, I actually get more sensitized to that. This is what I want to point out. People are like, how is someone interacting with me all the time like this? And CA always does those underhanded jokes. And all of a sudden, how do I, how am I so upset all all of a sudden? And I go, when you're in your healing journey, you start paying attention to your pain more. You become more aware of your pain, which means the numbing that you previously lived under is starting to thaw. And because you're starting to thaw, your brain is feeling things in a new way. So now I've been friends with CA for 10 years and she's always had underhanded jokes, but I normalized that because that was my childhood. But now I'm healing. And so all of a sudden that conversation shook me and I realized Okay, so now I'm in the processing in the car, okay? And I start realizing that's the pain point. And because I love CA and I can take her into context, I don't have to define her by that thing that happened that caused me pain. I can start bringing the theme of that pain and start sitting with the theme of that pain, which is deprecation through humor and how painful that is for me because it mimics a traumatic process that occurred in my childhood for years. So because CA loves me, what could I do? And this is a little bit more advanced, so we don't have to do this right away, but I'm going to just give you this for the sake of the podcast because, you know, I want you to see it played out. Okay. So if I can sit there and go, I'm not going to take CA out of context. I know that she doesn't purposefully try to like screw me over. Okay. So what could I do? I could next time I see her, this is going back to the boundary thing that we talk about when people love us, they can actually acknowledge that the way they behave could have implications to somebody else. Okay. So I'm now sitting with CA and let's say she's a very healthy individual. Okay. And yes, she occasionally makes like random jokes like that. And maybe that's not something she's even aware of. Okay. But now I'm looking at her and I'm like, CA. So remember last time we hung out, like there was like that little thing. I don't know if you remember, but you said that one joke and you were like, yeah, we all know Jamie. She can't blah, 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 whatever. Right. Underhanded joke. I realized that when I experience underhanded jokes, it is a big activation point for me. I 
I'm not inserting your intention. I do not think you purposefully did any of this to hurt me, but I'm telling you that when underhanded jokes occur, especially when it's at the expense of me, I struggle with self-advocacy. I struggle with processing that pain in that moment. And sometimes I struggle with keeping it into context. So what I'm saying is, I'm not asking you to magically turn into a new person, but if there's any way that you can be more mindful of the way you kind of converse in that way around humor with me, that would be very helpful to my healing process. That would be really, really helpful for me to start be able, being able to navigate through that. And so let me, let me put, let me put this out there. Okay. There's two things that can occur. I can ask for advocacy of my environment, which is what I just did with CA. And I also need to be mindful that I'm not always going to have that level of respect. And I'm also not going to always have that level of like redirection of the environment, right? So there's two things that have to occur. I could take into account the environment and whether or not that's adapt- like adaptable, And then I also need to start processing that people are going to continue to exist that do make those jokes. So what I need to start processing is how do I feel able to navigate the pain when I hear it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So because what I was thinking was, I I do think it's really good and healthy for us to learn some of those self-advocacy skills um, and to be able to have those tougher conversations with our inner circle people. Because again, like you deserve to feel safe while you are healing and we don't live on islands. And so a lot of your healing is going to take place with other people around you. And so the people that you like actively choose to interact with regularly, your inner circle, um, hopefully are people that also want to contribute to a safe environment for you to continue healing and growing in. But then there's all these other environments where, as Jamie said, we don't have that luxury, your job, even some like extended family environments that happen, um, things like that, where like, you're gonna still be exposed to maybe some of those triggers as we call them, um, those like triggering moments. And you're not going to be able to sit down with, you know, your coworker, Jane, who you barely know and be like, excuse me, Jane, could you maybe consider, you know, like, let's just be realistic, right? Like we can't have that conversation with every single person. So that's where like that second part of the process comes through, which is that the part that's like, on us, as we say, like what's what's on me and what's on other people during these types of triggering interactions. And there is that, you know, self-responsibility part where we start to learn internal skills on how to manage those triggering moments inside of us when they happen. And that's, you know, a whole process. And that that also takes time. But when we were talking Back before you started, we we were kind of getting at how do we start to identify and like actually use the correct identifying language for some of these things. And I really liked what you said about notice where you linger, notice those things that your brain is like having a hard time like getting unstuck out of. Like, why do I keep replaying that part of the conversation? Um, sometimes I just want to give like a bunch of other ways that this shows up for people just because it's just not the same for everybody. And it's not the same for every situation or every type of trigger. Sometimes we have what's called emotional flashbacks, where there isn't there might not even be a whole lot of like, verbal processing, whether internal or external that's that's happening. But for whatever reason, our emotions come forefront during some sort of an experience in a way that this is how I always like try to, I'm always trying to like observe myself while also living myself, right? Like as I observe how my emotion is coming out, I think to myself, something about this emotion feels slightly mismatched to like what's actually happening. And if you're able to kind of make that almost like zoom out observation where you go, whoa, like, this emotion is either really intense, like ramped up to like volume 12 on your amp, or it's like, like I said, mismatched where like, 
everybody's like cheering and and confetti is flying and all of a sudden you get filled with like extreme like fear and dread or like some emotion that like feels out of place sometimes that is how our you know complex trauma triggers show up is just like through an emotion itself sometimes it shows up as straight up dissociation which is a survival technique that the brain has come up with since childhood that when something was happening that was too painful to process, uh, your mind, your like conscious mind sort of just sort of floats away and checks out. And you might even like glaze over in the eyes and you feel like removed. Everything feels sort of foggy. If that happens, that sometimes is a a complex trauma response to some stimuli in your environment is mimicking something from your past experience and your brain doesn't even actually want to touch it yet. And so it just does the dissociation thing and you feel completely out of it. Here's what's difficult. This is why it's difficult to talk about this, guys, is because all of these things that I just described could also be due to any myriad of other factors in our life. Like just because you have a moment of dissociation or just because you experience a mismatched emotion or any of the things that we talked about, that doesn't necessarily mean it's 100% due to some sort of traumatic thing. And that's why we kind of talked about like, we're not going on a witch hunt here, but we, we do want to sort of maybe be a little bit observational about patterns because this Patterns is always going to be like your best source of categorizing information. If you notice this happening over and over and over again, that's a little bit more reliably. You might be able to pinpoint that and go every single time somebody pops confetti, my entire body gets flooded with this weird emotion. That's a pattern that you can rely on and go, what's that about? There might be something worth right. looking at there, right. you know? I, I'll point this out because this actually happens. A lot of people struggle with birthdays. And I like to point that out through like a real life example, right? When someone's like, I don't know what it is, but I hate my birthday. And I'm like, is that something you experience every single year? And they're like, yes. Right. And so my brain isn't like, we don't have to find, but like, I would literally say, okay, so pull out some themes. Like, what was it like in your house? What was it like in your house when you were having celebrations? It might not even been your birthday. What was it like for other people's birthdays? What happened in your family around celebrations, right? And so like we just said, you don't have to find something that's not there. But when I talk to someone about like themes or very predictable feelings that are occurring around very particular events, that is worth exploring. It's worth sitting with and saying, wait, there is a relationship I have. And then I have a choice. I can say, shrugs. That's just how I feel about birthdays. That's who I am. Right. And you hear, yeah, I hear people tell me that all the time. They're like, I don't know what it is, but I just, that's just, I've, I've, I've come to understand this is me on a birthday. And I go, Oh God, like that's an unexplored situation. Honestly, I don't want to be like prescribing it for them, but like in the back of my mind, I'm like, man, something's there. Right. But like if I sit there and my option is this is who I am, that's where healing will end. All right. So if I'm attempting to heal and then I come to the conclusion, shrugs, this is who I am. I'm miserable every birthday and will continue to be miserable every birthday for the rest of my flipping life. Um, You're there's the barrier we talked about in the beginning of the episode. The barrier is there in that moment where you are saying, I will no longer be able to ever get past this experience. And I have acclimated it so fully into me that there is no interchange happening inside of me. It is just accepted. And why is it harder to say, Maybe I'm going to look at the pain around birthdays because you have to feel 
the pain. And that's why episode number one has to do with consent. And I, I yes. just, I'm, <laughs> we keep we're going gonna to do a wraparound, people. We are going to always make sure that that is. <laughs> you start with that episode. That is essential here is that, like, that is very true. That when, when you maybe come right up against the the edge of the drama and you like slowly start to look over the the edge of the cliff and go oh i that's scary i don't want to do that um that's usually because again everything is kicking in to keep you alive and to keep the survival mode going and that looks like pain and that's unexplored and that's scary and we don't know how to do that so we're just gonna not do it and then we're just gonna live according to our adaptations the way that we had to adapt to survive that situation i'm just gonna keep doing that because it's what's familiar and Mm. even if it's uncomfortable at least it's familiar discomfort and this is why we always say what that like it's gonna hurt either way Mm. you can keep living in this version of pain or you can experience the head-on pain that it takes to overcome all of that and then get to a place of healing where it no longer stings so acutely and hurts so badly Mm -hmm. to experience it but you do kind of have to come through a little bit of a, a fire to get over the other side of the bridge. And that is not something to take lightly. So, I mean, truly, like if you're in a place where you and go back and listen to no, episode number one, we're not going to I'm not going to re say the whole entire thing right now. But if you're not in a place to look at a particular type of pain, you don't have to. Uh, you don't. But mm-hmm. I think this episode is really about, hey, what if you are in a place where you want to? And also helping bring clarity around the language itself that when you do brush right up against that cliff and you look over, you're allowed to look down and say, that is trauma. That is pain. Mm. That was abuse. That wasn't okay. We're allowed to start claiming the truth and the reality around our experiences because truly that is step one to actually starting the healing process around that particular pain point right you are allowed to call it by its name that's it with that we are on to the next episode thank you for listening thank you for listening Thank you so much, y'all, for tuning in. If anything we said resonated, please subscribe and leave a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. This absolutely helps us grow, and we really do value your voice on this podcast. So if you have anything you'd like to contribute, any tips, any topics, or if you just want to say hi, you can email us at unlearned at recollectedself.com. You can find us on Instagram at the unlearned podcast or individual Instagrams at recollected self and CAs is at embracing divergence. You can also find us over on TikTok under those handles. If you want to join our Patreon for $5 a month, you can be our coffee fiend club member. And that's going to give you access to our podcast within a podcast, which is called unhinged. This is basically where we let loose completely unedited we are literally just shooting the breeze having fun you can see our full personalities and it is a blast honestly it's pretty fun so if you want to join us you can find that at patreon.com unlearned and that's it the last thing i want to tell you is i want you to be brave enough to fight for the person you want to become and this is how we do the work